Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Begin by Soho CRM. So let's face it, you don't have to use spreadsheets, notepads, reminders, and 10 other apps to manage your customer information like you may be doing today. Whether you're a startup, a small business, or a freelancer, did you know that you can manage your business as effectively as any large corporation? With the current market, it's more critical than ever to retain existing customers while also staying on top of your sales pipeline. And you can do this with your business today by saying no to spreadsheets. Begin supercharges your workflow and helps you engage prospects, manage pipelines, and close deals without skipping a single beat. It has a super simple drag and drop interface, which will have you up and running in under 30 minutes. All listeners of our podcast can get up to 15 days for free, the free trial, along with a 50% off and up to $100 when you sign up. Just go to Soho.to forward slash begin Pantera Advisor and get started. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So very excited about the guest that we have today. We're gonna be talking about all types of startups. I mean, he's done quite a few, and he's even operating two rocket ships at the same time. Unbelievable. So again, you know, building, scaling, financing, you name it. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today. Lior Abidar, welcome to the show. Hey, excited to be here. So originally, you know, you were born in Milwaukee, but you went uh, quite early to Chicago. So give us a little bit of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? It's pretty good. Uh, I grew up in a, a small, uh, small town, uh, northwest suburbs in Chicago called Morning Grove. Most people have, have not heard of it, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. Most of my childhood, I would say, probably remember two things, which is playing a lot of basketball, uh, and just being outside and uh, not enjoying the cold weather. Those are probably like the two things that I take with me every single day now. And I try to go as far away from the cold as possible. But, uh, I, you know, Chicago is a special place in my heart. So I spent uh, many years there all the way up till college. So how did you get into, obviously, finance and engineering, you know, problem solving, you know, stuff like that? Because that's what you ended up studying uh, in Michigan. But what got you into into that kind of blend of, of both, you know, worlds? Yeah, I always ask myself how I got there. My, my dad was a trader on, on Wall Street for many years. Uh, he was at Bear Stearns. And so I, I think I was... Uh, exposed to finance really early on in my life, not even having realized it. And my mom worked in software at SAP America. So I'm almost like a, a, a byproduct of them. Uh, I also really like numbers. So my whole life, I've just, it's come really easy for me. I, I've always had an aptitude for numbers. And so I wanted to find something where I could use, you know, use that skill set. So probably a combination of all three of those. And then also, you know, once you um, graduated, then you went into into the financial service space. So, I mean, that's quite different than what you're doing, obviously, today. But what, you know, would, would you say that maybe that was like kind of like following your father's footsteps into Wall Street? You know, I, I had a different, I would say, dream or goal than, than my dad. Like for me, I remember early on, like the first goal that I had was I wanted to create this machine that would just trade stocks and bonds all day long so that I could go and travel the world. It's like a very definitive goal that I had. So it's like, okay, I need to, I need to learn the finance side of it to understand, you know, the products and, and how to actually like build a system in the financial 
acumen to do that and come up with the strategies, but I needed to know how to, I need the computer science skills to be able to program that. And so I always tell people I felt like I did college wrong because the only two types of classes that I took were either finance or computer science. Like there was no art history, you know, no other interesting classes. There was like, I have two types of classes that are going to serve my goal. Uh, and that's the only thing that I wanted to take. So yeah, that's, that's really what I wanted to do. I wanted to retire when I was really young and I wanted to explore the world. Like I'm a very curious person. And I would say like that what drove me really hard to, to study really hard in college and, um, you know, get those skills. Now, in your case, too, I mean, interesting that you went into into all these big banks, you know, as your first job, because you even had your first startup in college uh, in Michigan. So I don't know. I mean, it's since since you were already like into the startup thing and building things. I mean, what happened there with that first startup? And why didn't you say, OK, you know what, I'll I'll keep doing this thing of building companies? Yeah, I feel like every startup I have, I they're like. Uh, a lot of really good learnings. And so like the first startup, I remember it was freshman year. It, it was basically Instacart, just way too early. And kind of the big learning was my freshman year of college. I started with my friend, Brian. We called it Blue Lane Grocery. We digitized groceries and people could actually go and order groceries online. And you could go to the store and pick it up. And kind of the big learning there was I wasn't a developer, right? And so there was always a bottleneck of, of the company where if we needed to build something, we'd have to go and pay money and hire a developer right? And as a resource constrained college kid, you don't have infinite money, right? We didn't raise money. And so at some point in time, I was like, okay, we can't afford hiring a developer. And so kind of that big learning from that first one, honestly, was as simple as like developer, like having developers or understanding computer science and being able to program uh, on the web was a skill that I needed to have. And so from that point in time, I was like, okay, I'm then I'm going to go learn how to program. I'm going to go start creating websites. And so that was kind of the, I, the, the first one. It was, it was a great idea. Just, you know, execution wise, we didn't have the skill set that, that we needed. So that was kind of the, the, the first foray into that. Wall Street obviously was just kind of a natural progression, a little bit more on the finance side. I love the problem set on Wall Street. You know, back then, the smartest people went to Wall Street. It wasn't, you know, people weren't going out to Silicon Valley. And I wanted to, you know, I always tell people, I played basketball, but I'm not six six, right? And so for me, like I can't be in the NBA, but I'm but to go to Wall Street was kind of like the NBA of like intellectual curiosity for me, right? I wanted to compete with the best people in the world, the smartest people in the world, and show that I can I, I can make money, I can make more money. I, I wanted to compete, like I'm a, just a natural competitor. And so, you know, you go to Wall Street because they have the hardest problems, the biggest problems and the most lucrative problems. And so that's kind of what drew me there. Now, it sounds that for you, you know, something clicked at some point, you know, and then you decide to turn it off, you know, the Wall Street, you know, like a path and you did a startup. So what happened there? I enjoyed Wall Street, like the problem set, but I, I moved fast and the culture didn't hit the right way. Like I kept trying to innovate on Wall Street. And, you know, the Wall Street mindset is, especially when you're a young kid coming out of college is just do as you're told. And I'm like, well, I actually know a lot and I can actually help the company. I can help help my desk. And I really felt like they weren't weren't open-minded enough to do to to listen to me. And and in some cases they were doing something wrong. And so I was like, okay, this is not gonna help me grow. I'm not growing, I'm not moving fast enough. And so again on the side, I was like, okay, I need a harder problem to solve. I started working on a startup with some friends. Um I was really interested in in commerce, like e-commerce back then and how e-commerce and 
I think uh, there was a lot of kind of new social plays coming out back then. So I was like, how do you combine social and commerce together? And so we had this concept called Dress.me, which is, uh, I would say, uh, a, a kind of a different take on Pinterest that we started. And again, only lasted about five months, um, but learned so much. And I think, again, was a big critical part in me kind of being successful later on. Now, I think that for you, what really gave you the big push to get into the venture world in a big way was uh, your stint, even though it was short, you know, I'm sure it was quite impactful in Amazon. Yeah, Amazon was, I mean, I, I would say Amazon, one of my the best opportunities that I've ever had. I was there in 2012. Uh, so that's actually before it became the rocket ship that it was today that, you know, the AWS team. So more in particularly, you know, uh, Amazon Web Services was the team that I was at. It, it was still small. And so I I really loved it. I I had been playing around with Amazon Web Services on the side and uh, was just wowed by the fact that I could go and spin up a thousand servers from my bed and I could start competing with some of these large companies and build services. And so I remember kind of talking to them and giving them my opinions. Like I've never had a shortage of sharing my point of view. And they're like, whoa, you need to come and work with us. And you know, you have really great technical knowledge and you're a good salesperson. Come and help all these startups that are starting to come on AWS and help them build the right way. And so I love that. I was working, I was interfacing with VCs and startups and technology. And yeah, I was there. And then it really started clicking to me. You know, as you get older, you, uh, you start being more and more self-aware. It's like, wow, I really, you know, I keep talking to startups and it keeps bringing me a lot of energy. And then I keep thinking of startups, right? Uh, and it, it just, I would say like the most important part about AWS was the business model. Uh, I learned the business model and I was like, wow, this idea of creating an API for something and charging for usage, this is going to change the way that everything is done, right? Like AWS is doing it for cloud computing, but uh, what other areas could you go and apply it to? And that was kind of the aha moment. Wait a second. I can do this for print and mail, right? What, what AWS is doing for cloud computing, I can do for all print and mail. I can make it so that you could take an API request and literally create a postcard or a letter and put it into the real world. And so for me, I was just, I was like, okay, I'm going to go start it. I'm going to go apply to Y Combinator. I had always applied to Y Combinator because I had such great uh, recognition for it. And I got in. And so that was kind of the, hey, it's time for a first startup number three. Wow. Now, now obviously, Y Combinator was quite the experience for you. So so walk us through through, I mean, obviously, you know, here you were, you know, very much used to the East Coast and, you know, obviously your background in finance and now, you know, obviously with Amazon, but but I'm sure that the Y Combinator startup mentality and move fast and break things and things like that, I'm sure it was quite the experience. It, and it really resonated with me. Like I've always been iterating really quickly. I broke all the rules my entire life. Like, every, you know, whether it was in high school or was around Wall Street, like I just broke every rule. And so the fact that like Y Combinator embraced that, um, I loved it. Like I, I remember the the interview. Uh, you know, I think it's why Combinator has changed so much. You know, back then there were in in the summer of 2013 there were only 52 companies, and so I remember me and my co-founder pitching Paul Graham back then, who was involved, and you know we studied pretty hard for the interview. Like we wanted to know that we knew our business and we knew what it took to to start a company. Like I I'd, I'd failed twice, and I think failure is really good. Like I I had all these learnings. Like I remember telling my co-founder Harris, like, I know what it takes to get in. We're both technical, right? They just want people who are going to hustle and not give up and iterate and not be stubborn in terms of like, you know, uh, 
what they're learning. Like, we got to take feedback. And so why Combinator really embraces that. They tell you the only five things you should be doing is writing code, talking to customers, eating, sleeping, and exercise. And I was like, that's all I want to do. Like, I don't want to do anything else. That sounds great. Sign me up. And so, you know, two 23-year-olds got into Y Combinator in the summer of 2013. And that's kind of really the the start of my journey. And uh, I remember, like, everyone is always like, man, you've, you've quit so many jobs. Jack. And I was like, quitting jobs was so easy for me. Like, I didn't care about the money. I just wanted to, I've always been just, I want to do something that I... that really like flexes my muscles and my brain. Like I need that. I need that every single day to exist and get energy. And so, yeah, that was the start. That's how we, you know, got into Y Combinator and it was the beginning of of the LOP journey. So let's talk about LOP as well for the people that are listening. What ended up being the business model? How do you guys make money? Yeah, so LOP from the beginning was a print and mail API. Basically, we charge people for sending out mail at scale. And so um, the initial product was, take an API request, you give us an, a physical address where you want to send something, an HTML. Uh, so that was the content portion of it. And you tell us what you want to send, whether it's a postcard, a letter, or a check, and we sent it out. And we just charged you for exactly what that was. So a postcard was 41 cents. So that was kind of the initial business model. Uh, as we matured, it turned into SaaS plus usage. And we still have our you know our free tier where it's just usage today. So it's it's very simple business model. We just Full, full cost, all in, what it takes, you know, from API request to the mailbox, 41 cents for a postcard, you know, there's a price for a letter, check, and so forth. Now, in this case, for you guys, I mean, the fake it till you make it, you know, how did you go about getting the first enterprise customer? I'm sure that was quite a, quite a challenge. Yeah, I mean, even to give people kind of what our setup was in the early days, the the printer was just a HP printer. I mean, back then when you bought like a Mac, you got a free HP printer. We were just in Sunnyvale, California. We just had a HP printer in our in our living room, and that's where we were printing the mail that people were sending. And that only lasted, I would say, until we got to you know some of our larger customers. But you know, after there, we hired our first employee and. We started getting a lot of inbounds from really large customers. And I remember one time this really large enterprise customer in Sunnyvale, California, you know, kind of messaged support and said, hey, like we we have a, a use case where we need to send 23 million pieces of mail. And we were like, OK, OK, yeah, we can handle that. Of course we can handle that. And so they're like, well, when can you, you know, when can you meet? And we're like, well, we're in Sunnyvale, too. They're like, can you come now? And so. You know, my co-founder, Harry, and our first employee, Dan, they ended up actually going to this massive company. You know, it was literally, you know, you know, public company just going around the corner. They were thinking they were going to meet, you know, probably uh, at a a smaller coffee shop or, or something. And they end up going to this massive mega enterprise. And so that was kind of our first dealings with a really large company. We ended up signing a contract. It wasn't for for $23 million, but it was just really funny that you know, just from a support ticket or just from a live chat back then, you can land a really large customer. It was, we were like, how did you find out about us? We were so small back then. And then also the first employee, it did tie in very nicely too with your capital raising efforts. So tell us about that too. Yeah, so I would say this is for, you know, for a lot of young entrepreneurs who are coming out of college, one of the hardest things to do is actually hire. And, and not because hiring 
or interviewing is hard. It is hard, but you don't have a network, right? You have very little experience. You have very little people to draw from, right? When you hire a seasoned executive, they generally bring over a lot of people that they've, because, you know, they might have 10, 15, 20 years. And so the only place that Harry and I could draw from was college. And so for Michigan. And so, uh, you know, Dan was our first employee. It's actually a quite a funny story. Uh, Dan was supposed to start at Uber back in 2013. And two days before he was supposed to start at, at Uber, we just had enough money to hire, you know, the first employee. And so I called up Dan. I was like, and Dan had lived with me when I was in New York, uh, right out of college. And I remember calling him up. I was like, Dan, I have some, some good news and some bad news. I mean, you know, bad news, you're, you're not going to go work at Uber. Uh, <laughs> You're coming to join me and Harry at a startup. We also can't pay you very much, but it's going to be the most amazing experience ever. Uh, and literally next day flew over, joined us. Um, I even remember promising him, hey, like I'm going to get this really nice place in San Francisco. It's so, so much cheaper than than New York. And lo and behold, he ends up having to sleep on our couch for for about a month. And so a lot of our early employees were friends of ours from college. Uh, it's probably been one of the most exciting parts of building the company is just doing it with your friends. And so we had a lot of uh, Michigan people uh, join us. Even our, our next couple employees were also from Michigan, another Dan uh, uh, as well. And it was, it, was, it was really fun those early days, especially you know, when it's a group of friends, you're young, and all you do is you, you, know, you work and you hang out. That's, that's basically it. That's amazing. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Unfortunately, in life, you know, there's not a user manual. You don't know what works for you, what's normal, uh, when you're feeling stuck, navigating some of the changes that you may be experiencing, like maybe you're looking at giving your notice and becoming an entrepreneur, whatever that is, you know, having a therapist, you know, can really be helpful. And they're trained to help you in figuring out what's causing those challenging emotions. And also you get to learn, you know, with coping skills. I mean, in my case, for example, wherever I felt stuck or wherever I needed someone to coach me through it, I literally, you know, like had someone there, you know, helping me learning with coping skills, self-empowerment, dealing with trauma, whatever that was. So as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and better therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime, and it couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash dealmakers. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash dealmakers. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieberson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams 
through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. In your guys' case, also, you've raised quite a bit of money. How much money have you guys raised for the company so far? Probably around $100 million at this point. And how has it been the experience of going from one financing cycle to the next? More in terms of like, how have you seen expectations shifting and things like that from investors? I think early on, a lot of it is more weighted on storytelling because you just there's so little data on the company uh, and people are like, okay, can these founders and can this idea be successful? Do they have what it takes to kind of uh, get to the next stage? And so I think you know, now even being an investor myself, I think what people are looking for is, okay, are these guys technical? Can they build this product? Are they going to hustle? Right. And is this idea big? So if they do, you know, figure it out, can this idea be really big? And so from the seed round perspective, I actually think this is why Y Combinator and some of the early investors believed in us and because we, we checked those boxes, right? And we were working really hard. Um, and, you know, again, I think we were very stubborn about the vision. We really believe that this product should be should exist in the world. I think going forward every round, even from, I would say, series, you know, more so from the BC standpoint, the numbers matter, right? It's not only about, hey, is this vision believable, but have you have, tr do you have traction, right? Have you closed enterprise customers? Do you have a sustainable business model, right? Are you operating in the business efficiently? Do you know how to acquire customers? And so I would say over time, you need a combination of storytelling and really good fundamentals. It's not one or the other. And so all of a sudden, you have to really showcase to people, um, hey, this is, this is a real business. You can make money from it, right? Here's how you're going to have to make money from it. And so understanding what investors look for later on very different from the seed round. And obviously for you too, I mean, there's been tremendous growth for the business because I mean, how, how many employees do you guys have now? Right around 200 people. That's incredible. How, how would you say that you've also, I mean, you were saying that you, you always have had this curiosity to learn and to keep yourself, uh, you know, challenged, you know, mentally and, and to feed the brain and, and to, and to develop yourself. So, I mean, you've had to develop yourself quite a bit in order to keep the same pace with the business. So how did you go about doing that? Yeah, so everyone learns differently. I would say my style of learning is by trying and making mistakes. So I'm, I'm very comfortable experimenting and making mistakes. And I would say I've, I've made a shit ton of mistakes. Um, not afraid to say that. I think, you know, you have to as an entrepreneur. So I, you know, the best part about being the CEO of a company is that your role changes in the early days every three months and then later on every six months. And so what I would go out and do is I would, I would say, okay, what is the area that is just alarmingly wrong at the company right now? And that was the problem that I wanted to go and spend time on and learn, right? And so I would go and spend time and I would go and learn. I would go and ask people. I would go talk to advisors, mentors, people who I thought were doing it really well. And I would try to become an expert as fast as possible. And so that zero to one phase is something that I get really excited about. And then kind of the next step is, okay, now that I know and I can, can talk the talk and I know the problem, 
who is the best person in the world that I can go and hire to bring in to can you know to maintain and solve this problem going forward and then I would hire them right and that's really been kind of my model the entire time is become become an expert really quickly or enough to be you know really dangerous and then go hire somebody who can just continuously teach me and actually run that function now if you were to go to sleep tonight you're and you wake up in a world where the vision of lop is fully realized what would that world look like So I would say there's almost two points. The first one is like all mail should be sent through lob, just hands down. There is no reason for somebody to go and work with a printer these days. It's too manual. It's too cumbersome. You then got to go to work with USPS directly. Uh, all mail should be sent through lob, just hands down. It's as simple as that. So that's kind of the, the mail vision of lob. But there's a vision beyond that, right? Like I'm, I'm fascinated with the automation and the, the connection between the physical and digital world. And so... For me, it's a, it's a set, it's a suite of services, right, that really kind of connect this physical to digital world. And so I want to be able to release more, more, more lines of businesses outside of just print and mail. Now, running a business like this, I mean, it's, 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 it's tough. It's not easy. I mean, you're, you're literally in this rocket ship, but, you know, you're not running just one. You're running two. So uh, literally, like almost three years ago, you had, you know, uh, Alt, you know, really that the, your other company that you also brought to life. So so how did that happen? I mean, obviously, you know, just running Lob alone, it's probably like an incredible undertaking. So, you know, how did you build the courage to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to do one more. Yeah, it, it's an interesting path that I went down for for Alt. Like I, I love Lob. I, I, you know. I run lob day to day right now. And, you know, everyone has time where they need to kind of take off from the business and kind of de-stress. And so at night, my big thing since 2014, ever since I left kind of the trading world, I was always trading something, whether it was trading stocks and bonds. Then in 2014, it moved to cryptocurrency. So I was really early in, in crypto. And then it turned into trading cards, uh, like actual basketball cards and football cards. And so Every so often, I kept running into this problem with banks where I would try to go get a mortgage or a loan just to kind of, you know, go through the adulthood that most people do, like buy a home. And I always had, I would say, a different experience than everybody else who had a normal job, which is banks would not lend to me, right? Because my balance sheet was lob equity, cryptocurrency, and basketball cards, right? So when they looked at me, they're like, okay, so you have a ton of risky assets, we can't lend to you. And I was like, what are you talking about? This this stuff is worth real money, right? My lob equity was worth real money. You know, crypto is, you know, worth a lot now and it was worth a lot back then. And my trading cards were worth a lot too. And I was just, I got so fed up with kind of talking to that they wouldn't give me like a mortgage. And kind of right when COVID hit, you know, I had famously, you know, turned around $15,000 into close to $15 million in trading basketball cards. And I was like, okay, they, they have got to give me a loan at this point. Like that's, that's a lot of money. And I still couldn't get a loan. And so the, the problem just hit so hard that I, I was like, I got to solve this, right? And not only do I got to solve this, you know, no one else is out there is building a company that's going to solve this. So I got to go and, and, and do it. And so it was, it was just out of personal need. Like it, at some point in life, you need to be able to take what you've built and actually turn it into real dollars. Right. And that translation layer didn't exist. And, you know, all these founders that I had become friends with, all these CEOs that I had become fr friends with, we were just so annoyed that like, 
no one was lending to us and no, there wasn't liquidity that we needed. And so that was the goal. The goal was, hey, Alt is going to be providing liquidity for alternative assets, whether it's trading cards, whether it's you know sneakers, watches, whether it's you own founder equity, we will help you. We will be that company that allows you to get liquidity. And so it was just a near and dear pain point um, that I was like, I got to solve this one way or another. And so I was like, okay, like I'm going to once again, you know, go do this for another, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. You know, luckily at this point, when I started it, I started it with six other people. Like I had a founding team almost right away. Otherwise I would have never been able to do it. Now, wow, 15,000 into 15 million. My God, that is a quite the return. What 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 was it exactly that 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 you were trading there? What what, what was what was it? Yeah, uh, basketball cards. So I was uh you know buying Kobe Bryant cards on, on eBay and selling them, and you know the, the trading card or collectible boom really kind of you know blew up you know during COVID, and I, remember, I was yeah. sitting on this uh, mega collection of Kobe Bryant cards uh, that I'd been basically putting together since since 2016. And wow. again, it was more of a, I've always loved eBay. I love flipping things. I love the art of negotiation. I love the arbitrage. And I just saw so much arbitrage. And so I just started kind of going really hard at, at doing it. And so, yeah, I, you know, again, I, I still have a massive collection. I enjoyed it. And I was just like, I need to turn this into cash. You know, I need to, <laughs> or I, even more so, I don't want to sell them, but I would love to get a mortgage. Like, you know, like yeah. buying a home is such a, milestone in anyone's life because it's you're like you know you're kind of like independent and i was like i need to get a mortgage right how do i get a mortgage like why can't chase svb and first republic why can't i get a mortgage you know what i mean why is that such a hard problem so then in this case with alt what is what is the business model there how do you guys monetize yeah so we have kind of three lines of business we have an exchange where you can buy and sell trading cards the second one is we have a lending product where you actually can take loans on uh, alternative assets. So uh, that one is not just trading cards, it's any alternative assets. So we'll give you a loan against a portfolio of trading cards, watches, sneakers, NFTs. And then we have a funds business, which actually allows you to actually invest in those lines of businesses. So you can, we have the world's largest sports card fund. It's a, I think at this point, a $40 million fund. Uh, and you can get exposure that's not correlated to the S&P 500. We actually have a uh, an amazing set of returns over the last year and a half. And it's completely, you know, we're, we're actually up where the market is, is down and we're up considerably. So, um, yeah, the, the goal is to get into more asset classes and, you know, we named the company alt alt.xyz. It's a combination. It's built uh, a lot of it on, on top of the blockchain. And we, yeah, we just want to give liquidity to people who have these assets. And I believe that alternative assets are going to be one of the most, you know, growing uh, segments of, of asset classes over the next 20 years. And I want to be the ones that's going to support people on them. And how much money have you guys raised there? Uh, around $100 million as well. Uh, $300 million, including some of the debt that we've raised for the lending facility. Got it. And how does the, uh, the combination of debt you know, versus equity, how does that work on a company like Alt? We've raised probably like a uh, hundred and something million dollars in equity, two hundred million dollars in debt, and then on the fund side, we've raised around four hundred forty million dollars. Got it. And so the debt is used for the lending vehicle, so it's part of that line of business. And how many employees do you guys have at Alt? Around ninety. Wow. Now, in your case, how do you go about running both companies in parallel? Yeah, very hard. And I would say, kind of my my leadership style, I. 
you know, I can, I summarize it by saying, I, I call it the, the VP of nothing. That's, that's really my job, right? Like I'm, I'm not supposed to be running any function, but uh, that actually is not the case. You can't, you can't build a run company without running any, any function. And so I have a really strong management team on both sides. And so, you know, I would say I'm one of my super skills is, is hiring. Um, I really try to find people that I can learn from um, that are much stronger at a specific uh, line of business or function than I am. And I try to bring them in. And so, you know, Lob has a fully built out management team. And when I started Alt, I actually brought in a management team right away. I would have never been able to start Alt without that management team in place because I just, I didn't have the time on my hands. And also at both companies, there's a very clear like number two who is running the day to day. And so kind of how what I do on a particular day, I try to be very focused, which is number one, setting the culture, culture and values. What is the tone? How are we going to actually build this company? That's number one and one of my most important jobs. Number two is fundraising. I love talking to investors. I have a very strong vision. I've, you know, I have a commercial mindset in place. I want to tell people, you know, not only why is this journey going to be really, you know, impactful to society, but how are we going to make money? How am I going to get you return on your investment? And then the third one is hiring a management team. That's, those are the three things that I should be doing on a typical day, right? And, you know, everything else should be done by the leaders that I've hired. Now, it's never the case. It's never a perfect world. You know, there's something that's always on fire and I'm kind of diving into it. But that's kind of how I build the companies almost to a point where like Lior doesn't have to be a part of them. And so I really trust my management team and I have, I have a great set of leaders on both sides. And when you're hiring, I mean, is there like one, maybe like one specific question that you're looking, you know, for an answer or one thing that you look at that is the most important to you? Yeah, there's a couple of things. So the question that I generally ask an executive, I, I care a lot about numbers and looking at their track record. So I, I always ask them, what's the single most metric that you look at every single day that measures the health of, of the line of business that you, you, you measure, right? And so I want them to articulate that metric to me. And then I want to ask them how they did on it. And then I want to go so detailed. I'm going to go, I want to see how, if they actually understand how that metric works. And so that's kind of the quantitative aspect of performance. And what you'll find is that people who know their numbers and have a track record of performance, they can replicate that from, uh, from company to company. That's number one. The second question, and this is more of a question that I ask myself, is did I learn something from this interview, right? You should be hiring people who are smarter than you. So did I respect them? Did I learn something? Would I be willing to go and work for them? You know, would, it, would I go and work for this CMO that I hire? Would I go work for this CFO that I, if the answer is no to any of those, you can't hire the person because you need to hire people that are smarter than you. If you're always the smartest person in the room and you're always coaching people, your ceiling is only as high as, as, as yourself. And like, you can't do it yourself. And so, um, that, that was like something really early on that I learned, like, I got to bring in people who are smarter than me. I got to people bring in people who want to that I can learn from, like, I want to learn, right? I'm not here to teach. I'm here, I'm here to learn, right? First and foremost. Now, imagine if I was to put you into a time machine, Lior, and I bring you back in time. Maybe I bring you back in time to that moment of that, uh, I don't know, you were still in Michigan. You were like thinking about like building a company of your own, either at that point or one day. And you had the opportunity of having a sit down with that younger self and giving that younger Lior one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Yeah, it's not going to go the way that you think. <laughs> and it's going to take hard work. <laughs> uh, you know, everything I've learned in life is it's, I've planned for so many things. I was always the one who had 
this was my path, this was my goal. This was, it never goes the way that you think it's going to go. And that's, that's the part of life. And the second part is there are no shortcuts. You know, I was always the one who was looking for, oh, okay, how do I, you know, make a million dollars this way? Or how do I do, no matter what you do, you have to work hard, right? And so that is something that I've always taken um, to heart. I work really hard day in, day out. And I tell this to everybody is that you have to work hard. If you work hard, you will be successful. You just, you got to put in the work, right? Um, And that's it. Like if you come to work every single day, you give it your all. I I really believe anyone can be successful. You just got to try and iterate. So it's as simple as that. Just keep trying. You know, it, it's not, it might not be startup number one. It might not be startup number two. Like I tell people, I'm on startup three and four, right? Um, and, you know, I still have this chip on my shoulder every single day. I don't believe that I'm the smartest person in the world. I don't think I'm the most successful person in the world. And I work every single day because I want to be the best at what I do, right? I want to be, you know, for me, I see it again, it's the scoreboard. It's like, this is the the game of intellectual curiosity. I want to be able to prove that I can build a really strong business that is durable, that with uh, an employee base that's really happy. And so that's kind of what, you know, drives me every single day. I love it, Lior. So for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Email me at lior at lob.com or at lior at alt.xyz. I will respond. I'll try to help as much as I can or at least find the right person that, uh, that can help you with that. Amazing. Well, Lior, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers Podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.